This is Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Friday morning break with John Gibbs. This week, in my quest to understand what schools are for, I consider what role should schools play in the creation of national identity and British values. To help me, my guest is Professor Jan German Janmat. I hope you enjoy the discussion. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And so my guest this week, Professor Jan German Janmat, who is the Professor of Political Socialization at the University College London. Welcome. Thank you, uh, John. Thanks for, for having invited me. I'm really looking forward to this uh, to this show. Political socialization is something I'm very interested in, which is probably because I taught A-levels in politics, government and politics and sociology and history for most of my teaching career. And I always was aware that while I was teaching the knowledge of history, sociology and so on, I was also involved in the creation of a national identity, that particularly history. And I know that you have researched into the way in which education is used to promote and create a sense of national identity, national narratives, national myths, and also the the knowledge of ourselves as ourselves. Particularly, I know that your research was involved in the Ukraine. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your thoughts on whether schools, whether it's inevitable in a way, that schools should be involved in the creation of a sense of nationhood. And later on, I think we'll discuss some of the problems involved in this. Thank you, John, for uh, for asking this question. Um, indeed, I've been involved. I have been involved in um, uh, my PhD research was about how the uh, Ukrainian authorities uh, used the education system to promote, well, national identity. So how they use the education system for nation building. I think it's probably fair to say that all uh, states uh, seek to kind of promote a sense of belonging to the nation uh, using the education system through different kinds of, uh, in different ways, through, um, well, the, the most obvious ones through uh, are through, through certain ceremonies that students have to engage in, such as uh, singing the anthem, saluting to the flag, Yes, that's not something you see in so obviously in English schools as maybe you would have done once when the Empire Day or uh, my, my mother was given a box of chocolates on Empire Day when she was at school. Certainly the singing of national anthems and overt patriotism is more common in many other countries than Britain. In the United States, there was the when I taught in the United States, I can remember each morning the Oath of Allegiance. Uh, the observation of one nation under God and so on, and a real emphasis on the story of American history and its particular virtues. Probably more important in terms of cementing certain uh, identities is uh, by, by teaching history and then particularly national history. This gives um, students um, yeah, a sense of uh, how the nation has has evolved often when national history is taught a clear connection is made then of of the present to the past 
either the, the textbook authors or teachers seek to establish some form of commonality with the communities in the past by using terminology such as we or our ancestors have and so on. So you can see that a national history is very important for promoting these kind of national identities. But also that has also a drawback uh, because when promoting identities, promoting national identity, yeah, you always focus on an, on the in-group, which is your own nation, and an out-group or out-groups, which are kind of other nations. And this often also involves somehow putting the in-group on, on a pedestal. So depicting the in-group, one's own nation, in a positive light, only stressing, say, events in, 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 in history that reinforce this kind of, this kind of process. So only, uh, say, displaying or, or talking about events in history when the, one's own nation um, was victorious in some military battles or, or displayed some extraordinary courage, glossing over all kinds of black pages in, in history. And often what is then done is, that, is to actually depict the black pages in the history of neighboring nations, of neighboring peoples. So, in other words, uh, to cement a national identity often involves attributing all kinds of virtues to one's own nation and attributing all kinds of vices to neighboring nations. Uh, and this can reinforce prejudice and negative feelings towards outgroups, towards other nations. And in that sense, I think it is, it is, uh, uh, the, it's, it's a kind of a double-edged sword uh, promotion of national identity. So I see the necessity perhaps of doing so for newly independent states and nations in, in which you do not have perhaps yet a very clear sense of national identity and national loyalty to national institutions. So in that sense, it, it is, it is, it is uh, understandable that states like Ukraine engage in, in the use of education for this purpose. But I would, I would say that it, when national identities are clearly established, I, I, I can't see the, 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 say the rationale, the reason for, uh, for continuing to do so, to, to promote national identity. Yes, I think that's such an important idea. I love the, I really like the idea that nations that are more confident about themselves, more cohesive, more have a sense of, a sense of self-confidence, a sense of national self-confidence, that they don't therefore feel they need to promote the kind of vulgar nationalism, the, the anthems, the, the jingoistic approach to we are the greatest nation. And I'm glad to say that that has diminished in Britain. And I think that's partly because we've got a more critical understanding of things like the empire. It's it's difficult now. You wouldn't certainly teach an uncritical evaluation of the British Empire or slavery or the past. But not that it's uncontroversial. The removal of statues like Samuel Coulson in Bristol. In the United States, it's really a very hot issue with ideas about or the debate over critical race theory. As Americans who have an intensely, they're a young nation. And as I said before, they have an intense sense of their own pride in themselves as, a, you know, God's own country. 
And yet that's God's own country with a very problematic past in relation to slavery and endemic and entrenched racism to this day in many of their institutions and, embed and embedded in many of the institutions they hold most dear. Yes, it it isn't it isn't it does indeed become difficult because it's it it is um, uh, say a focus on one's own national history of of one's own country. Um, it it automatically um, sends some kind of signals as to in groups and out groups, and uh, I guess the more one's own the history stresses the history of one's own country. The, the 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 more it perhaps also sends a signal to those coming from elsewhere that somehow their histories do not count or are less important, and that the real focus should be or uh, or that the, the history of one's own country deserves some kind of uh, privileged treatment, and um, this is indeed problematic. I think it, it it does send a signal to all all those other groups that their backgrounds are are less, less worthy. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio with John Gibbs, my guest, Professor Jan German Janmat. As we consider the role of schools in political socialization and British values. So in that sense, a critical approach to history or a critical understanding of one's own society, its history and its culture is also an inclusive history, an inclusive approach to one's own society. One might feel more a part of a society that is honest about itself and critical of its past than a society that promotes uh, a narrative that is exclusionary. However, any narrative of the past, of course, is just another narrative of the past. The empire bad is just another narrative, as indeed the empire good is. So you even have to be critical of critical revisionist approaches. <laughs> and, or, or, and it's necessary to not be too relativistic. I mean, I think, for instance, that schools within Britain that would think that values were important, and I've got a guest coming up in a couple of weeks, next week, uh, Bridget Knight, who's a head teacher and write, and has um, co-authored a book on the subject of values and the value of subjects, where a values-based approach to education is important. And, she, and her argument is that values are things that you would all generally accept, things like tolerance and understanding and empathy and community support and collectivity and so on, and being a part of your society. Those things are different to exclusionary histories or exclusionary cultures uh, i think that particularly for for well-established states where there there needn't be any kind of uh, concern about the the allegiance of the population to the uh, to the national institutions i mean in in britain you would find overwhelming support for the for the the, the national institutions including the monarchy um, the, the, the democratic institutions, you would have very few, I think, uh, people who would actively uh, uh, protest or, or, or resist democratic institutions who wouldn't be supporting them. And, and therefore, they, given that the, let's say, British um, 
maybe not so much national identity because I know that British national identity is rather complicated, but but at least what you would want to have is, of course, that the population supports the political system. And I think in terms of system-wide support, there needn't be any worry here in, in Britain. And therefore, I would think that there can be a lot more attention, basically, to the histories of, of other places or to, to embed um, uh, British history much more in, in, in kind of a world history in, in terms of uh, speaking about certain events or processes in the world and then using a certain case or an example from the British context to illustrate something. So, Jan, is what you're saying there that the British are sort of more secure in their support, in their general support for things like free speech, democracy, toleration. And so from that area of acceptance, you can then say, well, now we teach history of Asia or the history of China. And, and that will be, that won't be, that won't be seen as a threat or as a challenge. Exactly, exactly. And uh, just to support that, I've, I've done this, some research on this, on support for uh, what the government likes to call fundamentally British values. And, uh, and, and there I found actually that the, the support for basic values like democracy, the rule of law, liberty, and individual liberty, and tolerance, mutual respect. So those are those four. Those are what, what are called as the fundamental British values. They were introduced by, uh, Michael Gove, um, in a, in a, in a circular, strongly suggesting schools to adopt these values. Actually, uh, schools were required to promote these values actively. Uh, that's in this particular circular of 2014. And uh, <clears throat> uh, schools would then be, are now also inspected on this, on, on, on how they, they do this by, by Ofsted. And I did some research into this and um, using a particular uh, uh, data, data that was collected among young people Actually, a bit before this program started to take effect, this database, it was called the Citizenship Education Longitudinal Study. Uh, and this was uh, held several times, really, uh, in the 2000s. And the last uh, sweep was made in 2014. This uh, survey collected data on the uh, political and civic attitudes of, of young people in British uh, schools. And what was quite interesting from, from that, from that data was that the support for these, for these democratic values was already overwhelming. I, I used particular questions to tap, to try to tap each of these four values, democracy, rule of law, and so on. And support was already overwhelming for it. So uh, it, it raising the question, do you need to support it still further? And what was actually also quite interesting is that, um, of course, the background to this program of fundamental British values was a concern about radicalization amongst, uh, well, particularly uh, um, the Muslim population. That's the PREVENT program. Yes, it was. Yes, it's part of the PREVENT, Prevent program. So the, the, the idea was that uh, uh, by uh, calling on schools to actively promote these fundamentally British values, this, that, that this could prevent or, or, or at least provide some kind of uh, insulation against young people radicalizing, probably particularly with the, with this idea of radicalization amongst Muslim youth in mind. But also, I have to be fair, also 
to try to kind of uh, uh, stop white British youth from radicalizing towards the other end, towards developing very kind of extreme right ideas. Sort of white supremacist and right wing, which is actually more common in many ways, I think, than the radical, well, I would suggest than radical Islam, but in this country. But two things strike me there. One is it's, it's, it's as if you said they were kind of pushing against an open door there, teaching, teaching fundamental values to a country that generally believed in these fundamental values. Was it an overreaction? Was it a kind of um, a bit like in the late 1980s, the Education Act said schools mustn't promote homosexuality as if that was actually occurring? That there was a, a sense in which what you're responding to is something that isn't really that much of a problem. So it's, it's a blanket approach to something that is a very small problem. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's probably the, what, what was uh, it, it. It was indeed an, some kind of overreaction. It was seen as something by sort of the party or by, by Michael Gove as, as something he could score points on uh, in terms of um, uh, that there was, of course, 2014 was the, yeah, that there had been terrorist um, attacks already. There was uh, the, perhaps the direct reason for this fundamental values policy was this uh, event that took place in, uh, it was Birmingham, I think. It was when a school board was taken over by or was, or was allegedly being taken over by parents from very fundamentalist Muslim oh, it, 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 uh, with fundamentally Muslim circles and then uh, imposed some kind of all kinds of uh, say behavioral uh, restrictions on the school. It was the Trojan horse it's known as the Trojan horse. I think the, the government felt that this would, would be giving them an excellent opportunity to show that they are responding and that they are acting to kind of reinforce Britishness or British British values to basically show to the population, to their, well, to their constituency that they were taking this matter serious, seriously. That's interesting because it, it strikes me that there's, it's always popular to announce that you're going to teach students some kind of value. So in any, in any given time in history, whether it's politeness, or its manners, or its knowing things that people think they should know, that never goes down badly politically. That you know, young people should know this, or young people should learn this. It's sort of almost a political knee-jerk reaction. Yes, it's some kind of indeed knee-jerk reaction because there's always, I guess, some kind of worry about uh, amongst the older older generation that uh, young people are are becoming selfish or um, do, do not have proper morals. They, they, they need some, some sense of discipline and she needs to be installed in them, needs to be instilled in them. And, and so it was kind of responding to this kind of feeling, I, I guess. But so what was interesting from my research was that uh, it uh, shows that, showed that support was already overwhelming. And what was very interesting was that it was actually showing up as higher amongst ethnic minorities including those of Muslim backgrounds. So also from that perspective, you could say, well, was it near, was this actually all that necessary? This, uh... yes. Well, that seems to me to be highly unsurprising, is that in every society, immigrants tend to embrace, or, or families of recent immigrants or the descendants of, em of recent immigrants tend to embrace the culture they're coming into as a partly defensive, but also because they wish to, they wish to be part of that culture. I mean, they... So it's not unsurprising that they should adopt what they perceive to be value, British values. And of course, uh, like immigrants throughout history, they have 
made a positive choice to be in that to be in this country in that country they've they've moved often with great hardship and with great uh, trauma to a new country and uh, therefore they're more committed to it in a sense because they've actually embodied that commitment in a couple of weeks I'll be uh, interviewing Colin Diamond who conducted the investigation into the Trojan horse affair and uh, looking at his book the Birmingham book which examines in a very nuanced very balanced kind of way the the conflicting interpretations of the of the Birmingham schools Trojan horse affair so that'll be they'll be coming up in a couple of weeks you're listening to the Friday morning break on Teachers Talk Radio with John Gibbs my guest Professor Jan German Janmat as we consider the role of schools in political socialization and British values. Yes, um, uh, of course, what I couldn't check is whether to what extent the, their, their answers were uh, subject to a kind of social desirability bias. It, it could be the case that some of these, these students thought that I better answer these questions in such and such a way because this is what they would like to hear. That's always very difficult to kind of uh, establish. What was interesting, and I did find quite a difference between uh, those who have done the academic tracks or A-levels and those who've done vocational education in support for these values. That was rather um, interesting. So with those who've done vocational education, showing a much lower level of support for these values. Although on balance, it was still very high in that sense, not much to worry, uh, not, not much to worry about, but there was a clear difference between those doing A-levels and those doing vocational education. Well, that's it. That's interesting. And maybe we'll get onto that more as we talk, because I think this sort of education divide has become more significant in our, in our culture. The United States see it as well. We see it as well. Support for Brexit was, was more evident in education than it was in class. It cut, it cut across, and of course class and education overlap, but in the United States, the education divide is even more pronounced when it comes to, say, uh, support for Trump with uh, Make America Great Again supporters, overwhelmingly lower levels of education. You can simply look at college graduates and determine the likelihood of whether they would support Trump or not, with those who didn't go to college more likely to support Trump and those who did go to college less likely to support Trump. And that might hold with populist parties generally. However, in in a bigger, almost philosophical sense, you would hope that education would produce greater sense of tolerance. Ever since the Enlightenment, you'd think that there was a, an enlightening quality to education. Well, the history of sort of Western culture over the last 200 years doesn't always ho- hold out much support for that, in that um, some of the most advanced and cultured and educated nations, particularly Germany in the 20th century, were engaged in extremely barbaric regimes. Yes, uh, well, I'm glad you bring this topic up because this is one of those topics that I uh, uh, really feel strongly about. Indeed, you, you, uh, as you indicate yourself, education seems to be the main driver nowadays of uh, political preferences. 
particularly voting for a populist party or not, and of course there the connection is uh, uh, the relations negative. The more educated you are, the less you, you would tend to vote for populist uh, parties, and and uh, the more you would in, uh, be inclined to 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 vote and to be politically engaged. Then, yeah, then you would expect, of course, that with societies becoming ever more educated, of course, nowadays nearly everybody at least has a a diploma uh, of at least lower secondary education, but more and more also uh, upper secondary education, and many more and more and more uh, uh, young people are now getting a degree in university. You would expect then perhaps that the uh, population as a whole becomes ever more enlightened and perhaps also more indeed tolerant of, of let's say, immigrants and, and other outgroups. And it is indeed the case that, uh, and I've done research on that together with a colleague of mine, Abel Keating, whether that's the case. Is it the case also that uh, the population as a whole has become more tolerant towards various outgroups, more accepting of various outgroups? as you would expect, because the whole population has become more educated. And uh, the interesting thing there was that um, we did find this for certain groups, for, say, towards other racial minorities and towards uh, homosexuals and the LGBTI community. There we could indeed see clear upward line in terms of, say, accept acceptance and tolerance of these groups, but not for immigrants. Immigrants was the exception. It was in fact the case that tolerance and, and particularly inclusive attitudes towards immigrants. So the idea of giving immigrants equal rights and, and uh, thinking that they are deserving of equal opportunities and rights. That has actually diminished. And it has, it's interesting that we could, we could track this also by age groups. And we could see that actually amongst the younger generation, which you would certainly expect to become ever more educated so of course young the today's younger generation is more highly educated than it was 20 years ago than 30 years ago 40 years ago uh, but there we, we saw really a declining trend in tolerance on on immigrants we speculated a little bit as to what might what might have caused this we were not able to pinpoint an exact cause so it's very difficult uh, but what might have been the case is that um Immigrants are seen more as a as a threat in terms of competition for houses for for jobs than than these other kind of minority groups, and that may perhaps explain why these attitudes towards immigrants are not following the same pattern in terms of tolerance. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out! Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! You're listening to the Friday Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio with John Gibbs, my guest, Professor Jan Gurman Janmat. As we consider the role of schools in political socialization and British values.
so, you, so we could we could sort of speculate that while levels of education literacy increase, there's also been another trend in our culture. There's also been a great an increase in economic vulnerability. More people work in circumstances where you know the the, the job for life has disappeared. The, the factory at the end of the road where you're going to be employed forever, your, where your dad worked and your work has sort of gone. The deindustrialization has created a maybe a more educated society, but also a more vulnerable and unstable sense of inse- a sense of insecurity, particularly among certain groups. Yes, yes, indeed, a sense of uh, a pervasive sense of uh, of insecurity, and then if other groups move into the country, they are, can then be easily associated with uh, all kinds of processes that they feel that they do not have any control over, and they can be seen as indeed competitors for the scarce housing and and um, and and work opportunities or, or or benefits. There's of course also this pervasive idea or the, the the stereotype that these immigrants only come here to use the to abuse the welfare system so they kind of welfare scroungers this kind of this kind of idea is is very prevalent and at the same time and this seems to be slightly contradictory there is this idea that they come here to steal our jobs well i mean if they are they can't be welfare scroungers and stealing jobs at the same time so there's a bit of contradiction there but but the, 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 these ideas are, are are quite forceful, and they could uh, they could explain why these these levels of tolerance have not actually become higher over time towards towards immigrants. And um, yeah, because and let, let let me say maybe one more thing to say about this connection of between education level and and tolerance is that. Of course, it is indeed thought that, as, as you mentioned yourself, since the Enlightenment, the, the idea is that education enlightens people, makes them more broad-minded. That's so-called the direct or absolute effect of education. Uh, there is also a school of thought that says, ah, but education also has another effect, and that's a positional effect. So it, 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 um, education prepares you for uh, good positions in the labor market, and once you Managed to, if you have a good level of education, that allows you to get a good job in the labor market. You have a, a high social status, and it's actually this social status that then determines uh, your support for mainstream values, particularly also tolerance. Um, but social status is a is a relative property, so it's 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 a so if your status goes up somebody else's social status will have to come down. So it's, it's a kind of a ranking order. That's what a social status is. So while education gives you a broad understanding of the world and, and the people in that world, it also is a ticket the entry, to gives you entry into some location where you'd, where you'd really rather close the door behind you, which might explain why people who have gained entry to a society or to a profession rarely question the means by which they gained entry, whether it's fair or unfair. The examination systems in the UK are largely grossly unfair and biased towards the middle classes. But since the middle classes are, as it were, arbiters of the rules, we rarely question them. So exclusive professions tend to maintain the processes of exclusivity. I've got the ticket in because they measure themselves on a hierarchy. I'm on the inside. Once you're on the inside, it looks like it's perfectly natural. 
and of course in a hierarchy those towards the lower end of hierarchy um, suffer from the vanity of small differences they're in, they're more intensely aware of their own possible and imminent loss of status since they've only just gained access to whatever club that is they find themselves in yes you'd like you'd want to close the door indeed behind you and uh so these uh the, the more educated you are then the and if you are able to 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 get a good position with it without in the labor market you know, the more you perhaps are also insulated from competition by immigrants and uh, uh but yeah all the ones who are then uh, below you on the ranking order they might they might feel the competition of of, of immigrants that's interesting when you describe this positional understanding or of social status, this ranking of social status. It reminds me of one of those questions that came up in history when I used to teach the history of the United States, particularly the pre-Civil War slavery era. One of the questions, that one of the phenomenon was that why was there such, such support among poor whites who didn't own slaves for slavery as an institution when they themselves would seem to benefit least from the competition of unpaid labour? But of course... Besides the fear of the release of African slaves, a very powerful fear that what would happen if you relieved, if you uh, rate the sort of racist attitudes towards the dangers of the released slave. But there was also the sense in which no matter how poor you were in the antebellum South, you were always better than a slave. So it, it conferred upon the poorest of poor whites a positioning effect that gave them a status that the release of the slaves uh, would challenge and since it is yeah since it is a since social status social position is is like a rank is a ranking order type of uh, phenomenon so that means that it it does not it does not grow or become higher in the aggregate you know it, it's it's uh, if if therefore the effect of education runs through social position it means uh, on tolerance towards immigrants in this case um then um yeah then you can't expect tolerance to grow over over time yeah this is a uh, i was try also to explain this to to my students it's sometimes difficult to explain but it's it is this kind of zero sum property of social status that that makes it that uh, say um education does not necessarily lead to ever higher levels of tolerance or that education does not lead to ever higher levels of um, political activism. Oh, well, that's interesting because that's a topic that I want to get into now. We talked about cultural transmission and of, of national values and identity and so on. But another, we've talked about the transmission of cultural values, but also something that seems to be a particular problem for the British education system is politically, political engagement. I know that's something you've looked at here about, you know, thinking positively about politics, joining parties, debating politics. That seems to be and some of the things you've identified as a problem are the diversity of British schools. We've got every kind of school in this country. The divisions within the schools you find with setting and so on. What is the why do the British have a particular problem with political engagement or political disengagement? I think it it is it is related to that to the whole diversity of schools and also the highly specialized nature of the 
British education system, particularly, I would say, I mean, it already starts in uh, lower secondary where pupils have to make particular choices in key stage four, but then it definitely in upper secondary education, where, which is so specialized. We do know from uh, existing research that particular programs like citizenship education, uh, they can indeed help in terms of, of promoting political engagement, in terms of making students more, uh, well, of course, knowledgeable about the political process, but perhaps also then developing a sense of ownership with it. And uh, so as, as soon as you think that you can understand it and the, 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 the political process and that you have a, a sense of connection with it, you would like to participate in it. So this is what citizenship education can do, not only the kind of formal type, but perhaps even more the more type, the more kind of um, informal, more kind of participatory type of approaches. And there's a very strong evidence in the literature that these more kind of learning by doing or participatory approaches, like ensuring that students can freely debate uh, political and social issues in class, that they can also actually practice democracy, for instance, by having mock elections on something by by having uh, by having um, a school council by voting for a school council so in in a words mimicking the democratic process in school that these learning by doing approaches they really help to make students more engaged and um, what is then particularly encouraging is to see that existing research is that Students from disadvantaged backgrounds tend to benefit more from both citizenship education as a, as a subject, numbers of hours of citizenship education, and also from these from some of these participatory approaches, like having an open uh, climate of classroom discussion on political and social issues. They benefit more from that in terms of making them more engaged than children from middle class backgrounds. So these are kind of approaches that are very promising to to uh, yeah, address inequalities in political engagement. Yeah, and then it is particularly nice to see then that this might then work very well for particularly the group that, that needs it most, let's say from students from disadvantaged backgrounds, because they also tend to be the least engaged. I mean, because they 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 perhaps do not practice these, or they 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 haven't had um, a social upbringing or a um, by their parents that is uh, yeah that 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 is stimulating in terms of making them more connected to the political system. Perhaps they haven't been watching the news each day, or perhaps not watching any news at all. Uh, and th there may not have been any kind of discussions on political and social issues in, in the way that they, they were raised. And so then the school education can genuinely give them a, yeah, which is then not used, the word in the literature is used, compensatory effect. Yes, that's absolutely true. I taught A-level politics for about 30 odd years, and I can't count how many occasions students were switched on to politics, but also they who who came from working class backgrounds who didn't read newspapers at home didn't watch the tele television news but found like a door opening 
are and the sunlight bursting in, especially the way that A-level politics, the way I taught it, I'm sure the way it is taught everywhere, is through discussion and debate and argument and analysis and so on. And they'd not thought about the world in that way or been invited into that world. And then parents would come to parents evening and tell me that they didn't read newspapers and they'd, what had I done in a very good way, what had I done to their young person who now returned home like a creature from another planet, demanding to question the news, shouting at the television, engaged in debate or explaining bits of the world to their parents? Again, hopefully in an enjoyable sort of way. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Katz Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio with John Gibbs, my guest, Professor Jan German Janmat, as we consider the role of schools in political socialisation and British values. I mean, I was looking at the kind of outside speaker programmes at private schools, and the private school will have a minister, and they'll have a, a, a political journalist, and visiting the school on a fairly regular basis, whereas you're average comprehensive might say, well, we've got to edit that out of the programme because we're, as you say, teaching them to read and write. That's very much, I think, what you see happening. I can see it here actually at a a school just across the street here. I'm I'm living in London, in uh, in southeast uh, London. Now, actually, the schools in London do very, very well. I mean, it's called the London Miracle, right, in terms of promoting basic literacy and numeracy skills, even if they recruit mainly from students from well, uh, working class and lower middle class backgrounds, these students tend to do way better than you would expect on the basis of, of their social background. Uh, and, and also the school opposite of mine is, is a typical example of that. It's, it's, an, it's an all boys school. I won't mention the name perhaps, and perhaps that's, that's, that's not, not nice to do, but it is a, it's, it's, it's a faith school, it's an all-boys all school. It recruits mainly children from black Caribbean uh, backgrounds. Uh, the school is doing extremely well. It offers an almost, it's almost like a mini society, offering even breakfasts and taking students by the hand basically throughout the whole school day. There is a very much an emphasis on, on, on discipline, on, on monitoring learning, but I do wonder what the opportunities for for kind of democratic uh, education are at such a school. I approached the school principal once uh, asking for an interview on these topics and I was not, uh, there wasn't any interest in that. Uh, So I do have to be fair that I do not know precisely what is going on in the school. So they they may do quite a bit on, on this and which I do not know about. So I have to be a little bit careful here, but there's definitely very much an emphasis on the basic skills, on order, on discipline, on, on monitoring learning. That may mean that perhaps these, these young people are losing out in terms of, say, preparation for living in it or participating in, in a democracy. Yes. Well, it, especially if it, I was thinking of the sort of mo- Mossbourne school model and the, the idea of you know, the lessons start with the students committing themselves to listen and work hard and discipline, discipline, discipline and hard work. Well, that is 
a cultural value itself and its transmission of a cultural value, but it's a cultural value that doesn't allow much room for critical thinking, debate and arguing yeah. and being awkward. There's, there's something to be said when you're young for being a bit rebellious and being a bit awkward. Yes. That, that, that goes with the territory. Yes, that yes, yes, exactly, and and th there is less of this kind of a emphasis on indeed on on on, on standing out then on how you can uh, engage in alternative ways because of all this emphasis indeed on on hard work. Hard work is very much stressed as as a value. Also, a colleague of mine, Avril Keating, who's who's done uh, research amongst young people, saw that this was the main criterion that they used to have judgments about immigrants. So as long as immigrants were seen as hardworking, as contributing to British society, they were deserving and they were therefore welcomed. But if they're somehow seen as not hardworking, they're seen as undeserving. And yeah, and so that that was seen as a very important uh, value. But returning to some of the research I know you've done, why does the diversity in types of school in this country and the division of groups within schools through streaming and such have an adverse effect on this kind of access to political and social education? Yes, because uh, because it affects access to these what we then call civic learning opportunities. Okay, it's a bit of a bit of a formal term, but um, the thing is, if you have all these different streams and different schools uh, and combined also with, say, a lot of school autonomy, then it can be the case that some schools do a lot on in terms of promoting civicness. They may have civic education. Of course, civic education is not, no longer a compulsory subject anymore in, in, in England or a compulsory course. They may also do much more in terms of all these kinds of in, uh, more yeah, democratic practices in school than other schools. And interestingly, American research found that um, schools that tend to have many students of disadvantaged backgrounds, they tend to really focus on teaching them the basic skills for all the, the, the you know, the, with the best of intentions, because they, they think they really lack these, these basic numeracy and literacy skills. So that's what we need to focus on. And we also need to ensure a good level of discipline in the school. So then such schools then tend to then see uh, things like citizenship education and democratic practices in schools as some kind of frills, as some kind of extras that are not really, that, that shouldn't be prioritized. And so, but so what you then get, of course, is that it's, it's the children from disadvantaged backgrounds who disproportionately enroll in such schools and where they are not actually receiving the stimulating education make, to make them more politically engaged. Yes, it's a mistake that's easily made that uh, values like hard work, discipline, self-discipline, setting goals, being self-motivated, uh, a growth mindset are not the, are not in themselves ideologically neutral. They, they, they are a set of values that meet the requirements of a dominant society that wants people to adopt those values in the workplace. I mean, we're talking about the hidden curriculum. And the hidden curriculum is highly relevant here because not only the hidden curriculum's teaching of uh, social capital and cultural capital, it's quite clear that private schools are great at uh, imbuing their students with social and cultural capital. 
and working class schools, unfortunately, seem uh, too much of the time to impress their students with the necessity to work hard and get their nose to the grindstone, with the implication that not to do so is their own fault and therefore a kind of guilt that many students feel when they leave school. I don't know how many times I've met students who are perfectly nice young people when they're at school who would tell me that they were sorry they hadn't worked hard enough and that I'm sorry I hadn't worked hard enough at school. Well, that's something I think when we leave is a legacy of the British education system. Well, a legacy of education systems generally. Guilt. So that sort of gift to young people. It's not surprising, therefore, that hard work and personal achievement should become dominant values in society, one that they, we would impose or as a means of judging immigrant groups. Uh, but to come back to the point of um, this access to this civic learning, because that, that is really important, we found that not only is there a difference, say, across schools in how much they do in, in terms of civic, civic learning, but indeed also, as you already mentioned, between tracks, right? If the, the education system in, in England is very specialised, particularly also in upper secondary education. So what you tend to see is that, yeah, these A-level courses are very specialised and you can do A-levels in just three subjects. So uh, you may not have something like anything like, say, sociology or politics or amongst your A-levels, but particularly also if you just do vocation education, then all the subjects that you get when you do, say, a BTEC or an NVQ are actually these practical courses preparing you for specific positions in the labour market. And so there are no general courses of, say, citizenship education offered in the vocational track in, uh, in England. Now, I do know that the system is so so diverse that it also offers plenty of choices. So it is possible for young people to combine A-levels with a, a vocational course. That's possible. What is missing is that you have within a vocational degree, such as a BTEC or an NVQ, general courses like, like citizenship education or history or political uh, or politics and on the on the continent in in other countries let's say in france or germany you would typically have such general courses including citizenship education that are also offered in the vocational track and so the system is less specialized there you can offset this specialization a little bit if you have an enrichment program or if you if you broaden the a-levels to it to include general education yes or general studies type things uh, social education, which which schools some 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 good six forms do, but of course that gets pushed aside if you're concentrating on getting grades up and studying hard and so on. And and so the specialisation and the competition in schools doesn't really help because you're not going to waste any time on anything else. It's always this idea that things like citizenship education are are frills are and distracting from the focus or the focus on basic skills and uh, lifting standards. There's this kind of, this is maybe the, the, the prevailing idea. Also then indeed also in A-levels, but, but perhaps, yeah, but maybe particularly so also in, in, in vocational education where there's, yeah, there's none of these kinds of uh, general courses. So you're making, you're, also you're making a case for a back, something like a baccalaureate, which is long talked about in this country and, and always seen as an answer to some extent to this very, late specialization and division among you know, people go down an academic route or they go down a yeah. an arts route or a science route or a vocational route. 
yeah, some kind of indeed much later uh, specialization, like yeah, some kind of baccalaureate format. Well, in in America, interestingly, America and 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 England are in that sense really different in terms of the education system because in in America, of course, you have yeah, typically you have these high schools. You do have also choices there, uh, but and you have advanced placement, so which is a kind of a, a higher level kind of track. Uh, but still, the system is basically kind of comprehensive with everybody following yeah, with certain choices, but a certain core curriculum until the until 18. Yes, I taught AP American history in the United States. And of course, high school students do, as you say, have a tremendous amount of choice. They choose between electives and requirements, those subjects they had to do and those subjects that they could choose to do. So they could choose to do journalism. They could choose to do more track and field. They could choose to do office skills, but they were, were required, every American high school student, at least it was commonplace in the United States, to complete a full course of American history, which was pre-Columbus to the present day, and a full course of civics, which was the Constitution and how it works. We've been much more hesitant in this country about teaching politics and civics to younger students. And a full survey of British history is probably rarer. But of course, the history they taught was the history of the American dream, the American progress, the American journey. And it was a highly selective and generally uncontroversial, therefore ideological view of American history. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio with John Gibbs, my guest, Professor Jan Gurman Janmat. As we consider the role of schools in political socialization and British values. I'd like to ask you now about another piece of research I know you've done. I know you've researched into uh, diversity in classrooms, in other words, mixtures of students of different class backgrounds, ethnicities, and whether that in itself can produce more tolerant attitudes to, say, immigrants. The Americans engaged in one of the most, well, famous and or infamous experiments in social integration in busing taking students from one part of the city to another part of the city, generally black students from poor areas or middle-class white students into other schools in order to create a more diverse school population. Now, that was done for all sorts of reasons, to overcome the disadvantages of the poor quality schools in black neighbourhoods. But it was also done to try and create, in whites and in African-Americans, a sense of greater tolerance and understanding for each other, with, with somewhat mixed results. My wife went to an American high school and saw that the African-American students were bussed in in the morning, stayed with each other and were bussed out again in the evening. Uh, also in the United States, there was a sort of white flight reaction where simply schools that had busing, white American parents moved their students, moved their children out to the suburbs and away from the more diverse schools. So it had a mixed effect. What does your research show about diversity in the classroom and its effect on attitudes of students. Theoretically speaking, that's very much the idea that if students come come across students of other backgrounds, either social backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, that they develop more of an understanding towards the these students 
uh, these backgrounds and they they develop greater feelings of empathy and they will become more tolerant towards others uh, that's very much based on the idea of contact theory by uh, Gordon Allport. I have indeed quite, done quite a bit of research on this, whether this also applies in a number of different countries, particularly also in England. My results are somewhat contradictory, I have to say, because indeed for some, in one uh, study that I think you, you must have then consulted, I did indeed find that there was actually no effect. So classroom diversity seemed not to be related to attitudes on immigrants and inclusive attitudes towards immigrants. In that case, can tolerant attitudes be taught like democratic values and attitudes? I think it actually indeed varies a little bit with uh, the, the kind of, say, democratic value or that you want to promote. I think maybe in terms of political engagement and participation, there's also an element of skills in it. And schools can promote skills and knowledge. And so that, that may be more open to more amenable for school interventions to foster political engagement than maybe tolerance. Tolerance often said to be to be really be, be shaped in early childhood uh, by parental socialization and which means that there would be less room for schools to 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 somehow ad adjust this. Yeah but I have to say that the findings on this are rather contradictory. There's also other research that I've been doing, but not using such a nice data source, what I said before, so not a longitudinal data source, but more a, a cross-sectional data source, and that's just a, a single point in time. The, but, but the effect of classroom diversity in that study seemed to be uh, dependent on the composition of the immigrant children in the classroom. It seemed to, seemed to be that the, the more there are second-generation immigrants in the classroom, the more classroom diversity works in, 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 in terms of producing inclusive attitudes. So it, it, and it, it seemed to be that, and so I, I, I speculated on this, that it, it, this may have had to do then simply with communication. With, with, uh, it may be the case that some kind of basic command of the language is needed in order to establish meaningful communication and contact, intercultural contact. Intuitively, you would think because we do tend to think that, that the, again, it's that experience that knowledge produces tolerance. So knowledge of other people, travel broadens the mind. It's that kind of idea we all have that surely contact with people who are different to you must allow you to see them as people. Yes. And not as labels. Surely that must be the case. So it's, the surprising thing is it is that it might not be always the case. Yes. And um, and here regarding then the 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 data of this English study I, I did using um, citizenship education longitudinal study, the point was that there I could not capture classrooms, but only uh, a whole grade. This could have obscured, uh, let's say, perhaps quite a bit of segregation at a lower level, at the classroom level, precisely because of streaming and tracking. We're coming to the end now, Jan, and... I'd like finally to discuss one last piece of research that I know you've conducted. It sort of brings the conversation full circle in a way. Some research you did showed that up until about the age of 11, students are generally quite enthused by civic values, ideas of participation. They find the world of politics, of government, quite fascinating, quite interesting. 
But then from about 11 to 16, there's a dramatic drop in interest, which picks up again later. I know this might well simply be unsurprising if anyone has known teenagers, but also I think it had it related to some degree for, to students' backgrounds as well. And this is exactly what I found, that indeed political interest dropped between the ages of 11 and 15, 16 to, to a kind of a low point at this age of 15, 16, and then it climbs again. But what I also found in that research was that it dropped much more amongst uh, students of disadvantaged backgrounds. So you had a widening social gap between the ages of 11, 12 and, uh, and, and 15, 16. And now I'm doing research with a colleague of mine, uh, Professor Bryony Hoskins, to try to figure out what, what's going on there and do whether schools play a role. What seems to happen is that um, these civic learning opportunities, yeah, they're, they're simply not as much made use of by students of disadvantaged backgrounds. So they, they, they don't access them as much as students of middle-class backgrounds. So, so, sounds like there's lots more work for researchers to do, which is... Oh, yes. <laughs> good news for a researcher. <laughs> we, Jan, it's been absolutely delightful, and I've taken far more of your time than I can possibly have uh, given you the suggestion I was going to use up, but you've been very, very generous. So many thanks for being such a great guest. Yeah, well, I, I thank you very much for inviting me. It was really, a, it was really a pleasure. So, what have I learned this week about what schools are for? I think I already knew, or thought I knew, that all schools were involved in the transmission of social values. How could it not be otherwise? The school in its institutional practices, its structures, its lessons, its curriculum, will reflect the society we live in, in its values and attitudes of the time, and of course pass those on to students. But Professor German's research really does show that we probably worry a little too much in a mature democracy about young people's commitment to democratic values. We're certainly pushing against an open door. That is, of course, if a society can maintain a reasonable degree of respect for those institutions, such as the rule of law, the honesty of politics, a general sense of fairness and openness. These things are not to be taken for granted and probably do have to be constantly maintained and supported. That is a question for the broader society. But for schools, what they can do, clearly from Professor German's research, is be aware of the dangers of social divide, of a part of our population estranged from politics, alienated and fearful, who don't feel confident in their access and don't feel confident in their ability to criticise and understand the information they're given. Much will be written in the future, I think, by historians when they look back at the challenges posed by a society overwhelmed by information and whether or not we prepared our young people enough to be able to understand it, critically evaluate it and to be information literate, politically literate and politically confident. 
So, the next time you're staying late to run the debating society, taking a group of students to Parliament, conducting a discussion on ethical or political issues, I think you're doing something rather important. Certainly, every bit as important as making sure that they can understand mathematics until the age of 18. You've been listening to me, John Gibbs, on Teachers Talk Radio. This is now available on a podcast and you can download it anytime, share it on your social media or listen to it again. Next week, my guest is Bridget Knight. We'll be discussing her book on the subject of values and the value of subjects as we explore a value-based curriculum. Thank you for listening. to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.